0: Welcome to this week's episode of Red Letter Living on Dwelling Place Church's Bible Study Podcast Platform. We pray that you're blessed by what you hear today. If you would like more information about Dwelling Place Church, please visit our website at www.dwellingplacenc.com. Join Pastor Tommy as he dives into the Word of God. Just a recap over what the book of Matthew uh, is about... Uh, Matthew presents Christ as uh, the King. Um, he emphasizes Christ's sermons, and uh, he, writing the book he by the Holy Spirit, is appealing to the Jewish mind. Um, he's trying to prioritize Christ as being the one who fulfilled the Old Testament and that he is the Messianic King. He is the one who was prophesied in the Old Testament to fulfill it and to bring the kingdom of God. So in a review of last week, In chapter two, we talked about uh, the Magi's visit or the the wise men, um, the flight to Egypt of Mary, Joseph, and Jesus, and then their return to Nazareth. Um, A few highlights from that is that Bethlehem means the house of bread where Jesus was born. The living bread, the living word came down and the first place he was born was the house of bread. And uh, we see a fulfillment of Micah chapter five and verse two, in Hosea 11 and 1, um, which we talked about where Jesus would be born and also of his flight to Egypt, uh, we learned about Herod. Uh, he was a very evil man, um, and he only saw Christ as a rival, as a competitor to his kingdom. And uh, we took a look at the wise men's journey, uh, the star that led them there, uh, how even in the darkness of the governmental climate, of that time, of Rome's rule, added with the sinful state of Israel. Uh, they were truly living in a very dark time, yet there was a light that they were following, and uh, and it drew them to the Messiah, and even today, in the dark times that we're living in, there's a light that we can follow, which is Jesus and the hope of the world. Uh, God uses dreams a lot. He spoke to Joseph uh, in a few dreams, uh, and he also spoke in a dream to the wise men to warn them of Herod's plot. And in the chapter, in its ending, uh, it ends where Jesus and Mary and Joseph, they go to Nazareth. And Nazareth means a place of separation or sanctification. And we see a unique kind of fulfillment of the Old Testament, um, of Matthew really using a thought or a concept as fulfilling the Old Testament instead of an exact quote. Because he says that, um, that it might be fulfilled by the prophets, um, Jesus or the Messiah shall be called a Nazarene. Uh, So we don't actually find that in the Old Testament, but we find the thoughts of one who was uh, separated, one who was sanctified, and that uh, Jesus was one who had that sign on the cross when he was crucified, this is Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews, and so he was identified with that. So now we're going to begin with Matthew chapter 3. It is a wonderful passage of scripture, and we're actually going to start reading the first just six verses tonight. I got into this, and I found that there was a lot packed in these six verses. So uh, if you have your Bibles with you and you want to turn to Matthew chapter 3, I'm just going to read verse 1 through 6, and then we'll start off from there. So it reads in the King James Version, In those days came John the Baptist, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, and saying, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he that was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. And the same John had his raiment of camel's hair and a leathern girdle about his loins, and his meat was locusts and wild honey. Then went out to him Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region around about Jordan, and were baptized of him in Jordan, confessing their sins. Uh, But before we get to talking about John, The first verse starts out with, in those days, which just refers to the time in which these events occurred, but we actually have a 30 year gap between the end of chapter two and the start of chapter three. A 30 year gap when Jesus went to Nazareth, and then now he's coming out of Nazareth to be announced by John, a 30 year gap. Uh, First Chronicles chapter 23 and verse three talks about the starting age of the Levitical priests would perform their service at 30 years old. So, why did Jesus wait 30 years for his ministry uh, to come to pass? We don't know much of what happened in those 30 years. We have one account of perhaps when he was 12 years old and he talked with the people in the temple. But besides that, there really isn't much out there that is scripture. So, in the 30 year mark, we see that there is a time of maturity in which the priests in the Old Testament would be mature enough, would be trained enough to do the work of the temple and to be a priest unto the Lord. And so it was a hint back to that, to see that Jesus was and is our high priest, who at the time of his maturity, he even had to wait 30 years in order to do the ministry he had on earth. And so there was, it shows there was a great deal of preparation and maturity that needed to happen before start starting in such an office. So now getting to John, uh, we know John's birth um, and his parents, we learn about them in Luke chapter 1. He was the son of Zechariah, who was a priest, and Elizabeth, uh, which makes John the cousin of Jesus. Uh, His birth was accompanied with the promise, uh, he shall be great in the sight of the Lord, and he shall be filled with the Holy Ghost, which was spoken of by the angel of the Lord. Jesus says of John in Matthew chapter eleven and eleven that born among women, uh, there were none greater than John, and that John had come in the spirit and the power of Elijah. In Matthew seventeen, when Jesus says Elijah is already come, um, Malachi chapter four in verse five through six states, "Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children." and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. So here it's talking actually about John the Baptist. He came in the spirit and the power of Elijah. And in Malachi, you know, this was written some 400 years before Matthew and these events took place. And to return the hearts of the fathers to the children and the children to the fathers, it's meaning to return everyone to a sense of what a relationship with God truly is. In preparation of the Messiah coming so we see a a fulfillment of John saying repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand and trying to get people to be in a right standing with each other and with God to pave the way for Jesus to come and to establish his kingdom interesting to note in Malachi this verse in this chapter is the final one in that book so the last chapter and the last verse in the last book of the Old Testament speaks about John the Baptist. I think that's pretty cool that the Old Testament leaves off with that promise and then picks up with it in the New Testament in just the third chapter of Matthew. That is pretty cool. Um, So, and how awesome is it that when God spoke again, he fulfilled these verses. So he spoke them, it was the last thing in the Old Testament, and then New Testament, boom, here's fulfillment. Here is it coming to pass. Here is John the Baptist. Uh, So John the Baptist is really... The crescendo, or the hallmark, or the uh, highlight of the Old Testament message. It is, it is the, the loudest and largest part of what the Old Testament message was. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So Matthew starts with John's ministry, uh, and he uses a specific title for John that suggests something about his ministry, and is written in such a way that John was well known in that time, that people really knew about him, they really liked his ministry, And John was the forerunner or the herald of Jesus Christ. He was the one announcing that Jesus was coming. Uh, He didn't drive in a Toyota, though. (laughs) It was not that kind of forerunner. He was the the herald. Uh, He was far from it. Uh, But he used uh, baptism as a prophetic way of of a sign, because the prophets usually used a sign for the people and the message they were trying to convey um, of repentance for the children of Israel, for the people in that time. Now, the baptism of John that he used was different than the baptism we know today. Uh, the baptism that we are baptized with is the one in which we remember Jesus being um, died and laid in the grave and then being raised to life. We are raised up with him. The baptism of John was one that was derived from the law of Moses, uh, it was an outward sign of inward purification, sanctification, and cleansing. The Levitical priests would do a form of baptism for consecration. Uh, Unclean people would have to baptize or wash themselves. Leprous people needed to do it, uh, to wash in such a way. And there are references to the cleansing nature of it uh, mentioned in Isaiah 1 and 16. Uh, Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, put evil away from you. It was a symbolic thing, but also a very spiritual thing. Ezekiel 36 and 25 says, sprinkle clean water upon you and you shall be clean. Uh, And there's also a reference of a fountain to clean the inhabitants of Jerusalem of sin and of unrighteousness, which is found in the book of Zechariah. So baptism was expected to be one of the signs that Messiah was coming, that Jesus was coming. It was a sign people were looking for that would be a heralding mark about Jesus. We see in, actually, the book of John, verse 25 in chapter 1, the priests and the Levites who were there actually ask John a question in reference to that, about the baptism being the sign of the Messiah coming. So what separates John's baptizing from the other ritualistic cleansing of the Levitical priests and those who had leprosy, uh, what separates the two? Uh, is that it wasn't just for those who had a special uncleanness. It wasn't just because they had to go into the temple. It wasn't just because they were unclean. Uh, And it wasn't just uh, for the heathen, but it was a complete immersion in water for everybody. He said, everybody, y'all got to get your hearts right. Y'all got to get your lives right. And so that's what separates it. And the Pharisees were all about ritualistic cleansing. The Pharisees uh, came against Jesus about that for not for his disciples not washing their hands. So the Pharisees this really butted against kind of what the Pharisees were trying to do and being ritualistic and following a, a religious sense of the law without what God was trying to do in their hearts. Uh, so John was saying all of you are unclean and need to be purified. And people were coming to be baptized uh, and that said that and confessed that they needed it. So John was in the wilderness, his ministry context was in the wilderness of Judea, which was kind of sparsely populated, uh, but the Jordan River flowed through that area. Uh, it signifies that John, he just lived in the country. Uh, he didn't shun everybody. He didn't try leaving civilization to go and be a hermit in the woods. He uh, likely grew up in that area, is what some commentators have said. And so here is John. He's, this is his ministry. This is where he is. This is where he lives. And this is where he preached. Um, and so looking at verse two, this is the, the kind of the main driving of his message. Uh, he says, um, repent ye for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I just love that verse. It's just a short little verse. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What repentance means is to repent is a change of mind that results in a change of conduct or a change of action. It's a change of mind that results in a change of conduct. So repentance isn't just feeling sorry. Uh, oftentimes uh, repentance or sorrow, feeling sorry for your sin, feeling sorry for what you have done, accompanies repentance It's a part of it, but it's not what repentance is in and of itself. It's that change of the mind, it's a change of the heart. It's, it's something that God in his mercy leads us to. Uh, I personally like the illustration i once heard of it being a 180 degree turn. It's if you're you're living one way, you're acting one way, you're going one way, God touches your life and you say, all right, Lord, I'm going to go completely the opposite way. I was was living in sin. Now I'm going to live for God. Now I'm going to do the best I can for him. Um, There's a beautiful illustration of what God does in our lives. So it's a complete change of mind and it's a complete change of direction. Now, John is referring to the Old Testament law that was being broken by the people. John was saying repent because the people in that land had broken the law, the Mosaic law. Uh, They were living in sinful conditions. Uh, But he also, at the same time, in referencing that, he was proclaiming, he was heralding the kingdom of heaven, which was at hand, which means it's coming soon. It is nigh upon you. It is any minute now the kingdom of heaven is going to show up. And we see that happen when Jesus steps on the scene. But John uses that particular language. He says the kingdom of heaven. He doesn't say uh, the kingdom of God. Some people say that that is because the Jews, they don't say the name of God out loud to them. That is being irreverent. So when God spoke to Moses in the Old Testament, he said, I am that I am, which translates to Yahweh. They, uh, they do not use the name Yahweh in their conversation. They say, so in saying the kingdom of heaven is kind of a respectful way of saying the kingdom of God. But the kingdom of heaven is also a reference to Daniel. In chapter 2, verses 44, and Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 through 14, um, there is a mentioning of the, the kingdom of heaven and it being uh, given to the Son of Man, which is a reference to Christ. And the Jews would have been very familiar with this reference of the Son of Man and the kingdom of heaven. Because of course they were in the synagogues every sabbath learning the scriptures learning what they meant and they'd be very familiar with this language um and so daniel chapter 2 verses 44 says in those days of these kings the god of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed and the kingdom shall not be left to other people it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms and it shall stand forever so this is the kingdom that john is referring to He's referring to the kingdom of heaven that will set up and will be over all kingdoms, over all the earth. And then Daniel chapter 7 references the son of man, signifying Christ and him being given the kingdom and the dominion. So with John and later Jesus using this language in the book of Daniel, uh, they are referencing biblical fulfillment to a generation of people who thought the kingdom was a political, earthly authority that would abolish Rome. Most people in that time, when they looked at Jesus, they thought he was going to kick Rome out of the way and establish his kingdom in that stead. Um, But how much greater is it that not only did he conquer Rome in a sense, but he conquered the world by saving men from their sins. And that goes um, across cultures, that goes across races, that goes across uh, age groups, that goes across language barriers, that goes across time uh, to give us eternal life. So repentance was the message of the old testament and how fitting that it would be the call of the one preparing the way of the messiah it was john's call looking at verse 3 it says uh the fulfillment of the book of isaiah for this is he that was spoken of by the prophet isaiah saying the voice of one crying in the wilderness prepare ye the way of the lord make his paths straight Uh, this reference is to isaiah chapter 40 verse 3 and all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all relate this prophecy to a fulfillment in the life and ministry of John the Baptist. It is a very important scripture. Every single one of them mentions it. Uh, That is a very significant fulfillment of scripture concerning John. uh, Isaiah chapter 40 verse 3 is actually a kind of a double fulfillment. Um, Isaiah 43 at that time was speaking to the Jewish people returning from the Babylonian captivity. Um, But now it also speaks to the greater deliverance, not only from Babylon, but the deliverance of Jesus coming to save the world. So Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, it talks to the children of Israel. They're being saved. They're being delivered from Babylon. But hey, an even greater deliverance is coming. And that is the one being proclaimed by John. So many prophetic words in scripture uh, have a significance for the time they were spoken as well as for the future. Excuse me. Others seem more specific to just the time they're in, or a time in the future, such as a lot of the end-time prophecy in Revelation and Daniel. Some of that stuff in Daniel we see has come to pass, and some of the stuff we're still waiting to see happen. Um, which in the days we're living in, we can see the birth pangs, as they were called in Scripture. We can see that the time is getting close to when Jesus returns. Um, with this passage in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, John is heralding the message. That is, he is the one crying in the wilderness. He is shouting, he is preaching, he is proclaiming. Um, it means that he isn't proclaiming something that was private. It's not something he whispered to people in their ears, but this is, this is something he proclaimed. This is something he shouted from the rooftops, so to speak, throughout the wilderness of Judea in the literal sense. And he was also preaching to a people that in themselves were spiritually in a dry and wild place. In making straight, the paths of the Lord, uh, it's to prepare the way of the Lord and make a straight path for him. So what does that look like? Uh, To remove the obstacles in the path of the way of the Lord, what obstacles are in the Lord's way? And those are the things that John spoke to. He said, repent. Sin is in the way. Unbelief was in the way. Carnal desires, worldly expectations. This is why John cries, repent. These are the obstacles that we're, we're wanting to Fling to the side to prepare the way of the Lord. And so this is what will clear the way of the hearts of the people to readily receive the grace of our Savior, the grace of Jesus, the obstacles in their heart to prepare the way of the Lord. And it is still a necessary and vital message today as it was then. Get the mess out of your life. Get out the sin. Get out the worldly uh, expectations. Get out the unbelief. For the kingdom of God is at hand. So John's mission and what he preached implied that the people were unprepared for receiving the Messiah and his salvation. The people needed it. The people needed John's message. They needed the Savior, but they didn't have the expectation or uh, what they thought Jesus was supposed to be was far from what God intended. And so they needed it, and we need it today. Um, At that time, the people were not ready for Christ. We see, of course, the disciples, and there are many that followed Jesus, and they followed John's message and were baptized, and they, they follow Jesus later in his ministry. We see that some of John's disciples later, uh, they end up following Jesus after John is beheaded. Um, but there was still the majority of people that after all the miracles Jesus did, all the signs and the wonders he performed, the teachings, at the end they cry, crucify him, in front of Pilate. They weren't ready. They didn't expect the Messiah to come in the way he did. They wanted a, a, a champion on a white horse, not a humble king on a donkey. So they deny everything. After everything took place, they still deny Jesus. But John was to prepare the way of the Lord that his grace may not be received in vain. In all of this, we see God's plan. It comes to pass. The world needed to not receive him. Because if the world received him when he was then, then they may have not crucified him. And that price wouldn't have been paid. So in it all, we actually see that God's plan of salvation was able to come to pass, even in the midst of people's hardness of their hearts. And God still gave them the chance to change. So looking at verse 4 now, it says, And the same John had his raiment of camel's hair, and a leathern girdle about his loins. And his meat, or what he ate, was locusts and wild honey. Very interesting. John's appearance in itself, he was similarly dressed to Elijah. We see there's a reference to Elijah being clothed with a leather girdle and being rough and being a hairy man. So even in John the Baptist's clothes, uh, we see a reference back to Elijah, which John came in the spirit and the power of Elijah. Um, And the book of Zechariah actually talks about the dress of a prophet in those days uh, being coarse material. And so we see that John didn't wear the comfiest of clothes. Uh, so John's appearance was a very stark contrast uh, to the long robes of the Pharisees and the gorgeous apparel of the scribes, the presumed religious leaders of that day. He was a very stark contrast in his hairiness and his camel skin and leather leather girdle. Um, but this, so even not only in the message he preached did he challenge them, but even his very appearance he was challenging them every time he, they saw him. And as to the locusts and honey that uh, he ate, uh, locusts were permitted to eat by the Mosaic Law. Um, you can still eat locusts in some countries today, uh, like Palestine and Syria, they still enjoy them. There's many ways to cook them actually, it's pretty interesting to look at. Uh, but usually locusts is eaten by the poorest of the poor in the country uh some people say they taste like shrimp and um they can be cooked many different ways and some people really like them but uh not not something i'd like to try anytime soon but that was the food that john ate and the honey was something that he could find in the cracks of the rocks and something he could find in the trees whenever he got the chance to and that was a lot better sounding than the locust was for sure um maybe he had locust and honey sandwiches i don't know but uh, John didn't have to live this way. Um, remember, John was the son of Zechariah. So, John was the only son of a priest. He, by all accounts, should have been fairly well off and taken care of. He wouldn't lack for anything. Um, he could have been pretty well off for the standards of that day. But, being a prophet, who usually, again, they operate in signs and symbolism, he took on a form like Elijah. But that was also clothed in humility, and in it means that he could easily basically eat on the go. Uh, his fast food really was fast, and he had to catch it. Uh, sorry that was that was a bad joke. Uh, y'all forgive me for that one but um but the point of it was that he can eat the locust and eat the honey, and he didn't have to go to a field and tend to plants to make his garden grow. He didn't have to take care of sheep to keep his keep or to to feed himself. Uh, He lived in such a way that the message that was inside of him was his absolute priority and was his life's purpose, and he lived for that, to proclaim the word of the Lord. So we see the the spirit and the power of Elijah, but also a man clothed with humility and who had God prioritized in his life. Look in verse 5 and 6. It says, Then went out to him Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region round about Jordan, and were baptized of him in Jordan, confessing their sins." John's ministry was received initially with great enthusiasm, and he drew great crowds and got the attention of the Jewish religious sect as well as eventually the government that was after him. And the people confessing their sins was a public announcement of repentance in the process of John's baptism. He had a good response. And. Just looking again, I know in some of the previous weeks, I like to look at the names and the meanings of things uh, in some of the past chapters. Uh, The name of John means Yahweh is gracious. And that just sums up John's whole life and his whole ministry just in his name. Yahweh is gracious. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And Jesus is coming. And his grace, Jesus' grace, what he brought, It just shows that God is gracious. God brought Jesus into the world. That's his whole ministry right there. So there's everything he tried to tell people. And with John baptizing people in the Jordan River, the name Jordan in this biblical passage means either flowing down or one who descends. So here again, I find it fascinating that the Holy Spirit descends on Jesus like a dove, as we will see in a few verses later, um, in the place of one who descends. So we see the Holy Spirit descending on Jesus in the place in the River Jordan, one who descends. It's very cool. Um, and not only that, but it is here where John introduces Jesus as the one who came down as the Lamb of God. So, one who descends, the Holy Spirit descends on Jesus, and it's also John proclaiming this is the Son of God who came down for the sins of the world to redeem the world to himself. So, I wanted to actually stop there tonight in verse 6. Uh, there was actually a lot going on in just those few verses. And next week, I want to pick up with cha- of verse 7 through the rest of chapter 3. If we get that far, we'll see. And that's when we'll actually get into some red letters uh, through verse 17. But I just when I began to unpack this, there's so much that is going on here. It's so much about John's ministry. Um, and I want to leave some questions for thought. Uh, in verse 2. Verse 2 is just amazing to me, about repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Um, When I look at John, John the Baptist, uh, I see a man man who's unconventional. Uh, He's not made from the same cloth as everybody else. Um, He was able to challenge uh, the religious organization of his day by addressing their hypocrisy. And actually, in the first verses coming after verse six, we see all these questions that he brings toward the Pharisees, you brood of vipers, and who warned you of the wrath to come? So he challenged them in their hypocrisy. Um, Some questions I was just thinking of is like, what made his message stand out? Um, Which I'm thinking is every part of him. I mean, he didn't eat what everyone else ate. He didn't wear or say what everyone else did. He stood out as an individual and in the message he preached. And just today, we we live in the information age. We live um, when messages are bombarding us uh, by the hundreds of thousands each and every day. Um, Is it going to take the church looking different from everyone else for the world to see Christ? Um, You know what you know. We can. The word says that the world will know that we're Jesus' disciples by our love. Are we standing out in the message that? proclaiming in the way that we live, the words that we say, the relationships that we have, it's food for thought. And being different doesn't mean it has to be complicated. John's life and his ministry was simple. He lived in the wilderness of Jordan, of Judea. He uh, ate very simply, and he just proclaimed the word of Christ. Uh, So being different can be as simple as being kind to someone when they were mean to you. Being different can be as simple as uh, Cold, of, cold cup of water to your enemy. As Jesus says, love your enemies. Uh, there are little things we can do on a daily basis that are simple, but they can make all the difference.